Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and my name is Nathan Hobson, and I'm a host for the New Books in Food podcast, a member of the New Books Network. Uh, today, I'm talking with uh, my colleague, Dr. Inez Polo, uh, who is the author of Globalizing the Soybean, Fat, Feed, and Sometimes Food, circa 1900 to 1950. Uh, the book is out from Rutledge this year, 2023. And this is a, a rare privilege uh, to actually be able to interview uh, somebody in person, a privilege and a pleasure. Uh, and it's also a little bit strange since Inez and I will be seeing each other later in a student meeting. Uh, so this is a long day of, of hanging out with me, Inez, but I, I, hope, uh, I hope it won't be too awful for you. Um, and we're going to talk about uh, your book, which is all about uh, the history, the modern history of the soybean. Um, and so I wanted to ask uh, how you became interested in that book project to get us started. Yes. Thank you so much, Nathan. Thank you so much for having me, for inviting me. I appreciate this very much. And do please do call me Ines. Um, we're good colleagues, and I very much appreciate that we hang out the, for the whole day together. And I'm looking forward to both this podcast and also to uh, the supervision meeting later today. So for your first question, how did I become interested in soybeans? That goes actually back to the last month, um, possibly the last year of my PhD project, when, which I completed at the University of Heidelberg in Germany. Back then, the university had a huge research project running on Asia and Europe, on flows and connections between Asia and Europe. It was what the Germans called a cluster of excellence. And I and a few colleagues were not 100% directly involved in this, but we wanted to become involved in this. And we thought it's a perfect opportunity to explore regions beyond those we were trained in and that those we were familiar with. And we started out a little research project on the history of Manchuria and uh, precisely on the history of the city in of Harbin, which is in Manchuria. And while the colleagues I worked with were familiar with um, all the beautiful languages I'm not so familiar with, that is mainly Russian, Chinese and Japanese, I thought about what I could do, um, what kind of project I could work on, despite my limited language skills. And I soon realized that Manchuria back in the 1920s, where the, was the main producer of soybeans worldwide. And then it all occurred to me that we don't know much about the soybeans, the history of the soybeans. We have a lot of uh, presumptions about the soybeans. We all have an opinion about soybeans. Some people know that the rainforest in Brazil is deforested because of the soybeans. Some people believe that that is because there are so many vegetarians in the world um, that they need so many soybeans for tofu. 
Others um, do know that these soybeans are mainly used for feeding and f um, for fattening um, livestock. So I thought, well, this is pretty much interesting. How did the soybeans actually arrive in the Western world? Um, how did they come from Manchuria to Europe and then Northern America and so, uh, later also Southern America? So I found this so intriguing that everybody has an opinion about soybean, but nobody knows that much about the history of the soybean. Not nobody, but people had limited amounts of knowledge about it. And that that was basically the, the triggering factor and the, the, the triggers behind it, my decision to focus on the soybeans. There is one more aspect. Um, I have a history when I was a child back in agriculture. So my father was a gardener and I have a deep interest for plants, for agriculture, for farming. And I come from northern Germany. For sure, soybeans never, ever grew in northern Germany, northeastern Germany when I was a child. But I felt that looking at soybeans, at a history of a plant, would give me the opportunity to kind of combine my past as a child growing up on, on farmland with my kind of second urban life as an academic person. That's really interesting. I had no idea there was that personal connection there. Um, and for me, you know, as a uh, historian mostly of Japan who also works on food, um, I've used some uh, old newsreel footage of uh, big uh, I guess you would call them rounds of uh, soy being rolled around the docks in Manchuria uh, <laughs> under Japanese rule. And I think it surprises a lot of students. Um, and I think it, it goes to that sort of problem of, I don't really quite understand how all this world economy of soy fits together. And we it's that, I think there's a little bit of the sort of Dunning-Kruger effect where you, you feel like you understand it. And then the more you think about it, the more you realize that you don't really understand it. Uh, so for, this, for me, uh, this was a, an interesting... Um, opportunity to see the soybean in new light and to learn something more about it. Um, and I started learning about it with the subtitle of your book, uh, which is Fat, Feed, and Sometimes Food, uh, circa 1900 to 1950. So I think this this is a great subtitle. First of all, congratulations on the alliteration, but also it does a nice, a really nice job of summing up both the scope 1900 to 1950, uh, and the argument of the book, Fat, Feed, and Sometimes Food. So to get us started, I, I wonder if you could unpack that subtitle as a way of getting into the book uh, and explain the three major factors that you identify um, in spurring the globalization of the soybean. So the first of that is, uh, the first of those is technological developments in Europe. Uh, then we have Japanese imperialism. And the third is globalization. Yes, I can certainly do that. Uh, so my main research question, the one that I started out with, was how did the soybean as an Asian stranger ended up in the Western world? And here you have to know that before the soybean arrived, many other plants, not only from Asia, but also from other parts of the world, had already arrived in the Western or what we, what we associate with the Western world. Think of coffee, think of chocolate, think, uh, think of tea, think of various spices. They all are around since the early modern times. 
Soybeans arrived briefly after 1900, and there's a latecomer. And my main question was, why is it a latecomer? It's a plant that botanists can date thousands of years back in time. So why didn't it leave Asia? That was my earlier. That was one of the questions I was interested in. So I then realized that the um, demand in soybeans was actually triggered by a demand in fat. And that is how I became more interested in the history of fats, but also everything else that is then related to fat. Um, soybeans contain basically fat and protein that are the main components in this particular bean. And the Western world, specifically Europe, and here we talk about Great Britain, we talk about France, we talk about Germany, and also Denmark, had a demand in fats because they were desperately needed for food purposes, but also for industrial purposes. So like to produce soap, for instance, or produce paints, all that is based on um, fats and oils, oils being only the liquid form of fat. So I usually use the umbrella term fat, even though what soybeans contain is technically spoken an oil. So this demand in uh, soybean, uh, this demand in fat triggered a global search for other resources. And then there was this very um, specialized uh, and interesting Japanese company. It's called Mitsui. It was a saibatsu. It was a conglomerate that um, did a lot of things in Japan, but also in the wider Jap Japanese empire that kind of introduced soybeans to Great Britain. So it was a trading company, uh, but it was also a banking company. They had a banking business. They had a mining business. It was one of these Japanese saibatsus. And the trading company had offices in var various areas around the world, among others in London. And that was because this trading company also traded rice. And they were looking for new markets for rice in Europe. And by gathering all sorts of information, they also sensed, okay, these Brits, they have a higher demand for fat. And we have a solution for that. We, our solution are soybeans. They knew that since they had control over specific markets and areas in Manchuria, they knew that Chinese farmers in Manchuria grew soybeans. And they knew that because they imported, traded soybean cake that are the round shaped cakes you were mentioning earlier, Nathan. They traded these round cakes from Manchuria to Japan to fertilize the rice paddies in Japan. And these cakes are nothing else than the residue of the milling process. So, and what do you mill? You mill the bean and you got oil on one hand and you got this residue on the other. So they thought, okay, we have a solution for the European demand in fats and that is the soybean. Technically, you could say, hmm, 
if the Japanese were interested in the cake to fertilize the rice paddies, then they could trade the oil directly to Europe. That didn't quite work out because the oil grew rancid when um, being transported over the oceans. So they ended up offering whole soybeans, uncrushed, unprocessed soybeans to European markets. First of all, British, here we talk about Hull, but then later also to other um, ports like Rotterdam, Bremen, Hamburg, but also Marseille. And European customers were happy to accept the soybeans because their uh, oil mills, as they were called, could handle a variety of different seeds and beans and fruits. So here we talk about palm oils, but we also talk about um, other fruits and, and seeds to produce oils. And they had to do some adjustments to their oil mills, but it was not that difficult, apparently, to make these adjustments. So then they imported the soybeans to offer the oil to markets in Europe in the production of basically margarine, soap and paints. There were other uses, but the main market was that for margarine. And then a little bit soaps, and here we talk about lotions, creams, ointments, all that kind of stuff. And then we talk about paints and varnishes. And this is, we talk about the period after uh, 1900, more specifically even after 1905, after the Japanese, uh, the Chinese-Japanese War, when Japan gained a bigger foothold uh, in China and that trading company Mitsui and Co. Um, could expand its activities to the um, Asian mainland and here Manchuria. And I'm sorry, it was not the Japanese-Chinese war I'm um, talking about. It was, of course, the uh, Russo-Japanese war that was fought on uh, Chinese um, grounds in Manchuria. So we're talking about the Russo-Japanese war that ended in 1905 and that gave uh, Japan a greater power in Manchuria. So, and in that aftermath, after 1905, these soybeans were then traded to Europe, as I said, and they were then in Europe crashed and the soybean oil was sold to um, customers uh, producing margarine, soap and paint, but also to others. This is the period of what we call the Second Industrial Revolution. So this is the period where chemists and other scientists got into highly complicated um, synthesis and chemical processes. So after some time, we, we talk about, to a limited degree, but we do talk about glue, we do talk about linoleum, we do talk about early forms of plastics, we talk about dynamite and um, printing ink, among others. So that's where the oil went. But then you have to know that the, um, that the soybean contains, the soybean varieties at that time contained max 15% of oil. You are not able by, you were not able by uh, processing methods back then to get all the 15% out of it. You got maybe 10. 
and then imagine how huge the amount of residue from the milling process actually was. And they had to find a solution for that. And the solution was easily found because it is that residue is so rich in protein, you could use it as a protein-rich uh, fodder for livestock. And of course, they had to do some checks here, especially when feeding it to cows, because cows actually feed on grass. And now you come with a protein-rich bean. So a cow's stomach system is not, digestive system is not used to try digesting soybeans. But they did some experiments here and there, and they did the same with chickens, and they did the same with others like pigs and other livestock. So at the end of the day, it was a win-win situation because they soon figured, wow, this protein-rich feed gives muscle tissue to our livestock, and that's what we actually want. We want, yeah, fatty pigs, but we also want them to have good meat, good muscle meat that we can eat, and the same with chickens. That is how it all got started, and it was such a story of success that within a very short period of time, these soybeans were in high demand in on European markets. So, and now I feel you have to bring me back on track. <laughs> no, not at all. I, this was uh, it's a great summation of uh, so much of the sort of origin story that uh, for the larger narrative that you're trying to lay out here. Uh, also. I kept hearing, you know, these are a few of my favorite things playing in the background when you're asking me to think about coffee and chocolate and soy and fat and protein. So um, it was uh, th that was great. Um, I, I wanted to uh, it, it bring you to Germany, which is one of your case studies specifically within Europe. Right. The, the book overall focuses on uh, the you know, Japan's uh, territories in Manchuria. So to some extent, Japan and Manchuria as an entity. Um, and then you have a case study within these European markets that you're talking about, which is Germany. And then uh, after that, we're going to talk about the United States, which is the the sort of other big uh, case study that you do. Um, and that's kind of the outlier. But within Europe, um, you know, you've got you started to talk about this idea of the sort of win win scenario um, for Germany. You know, how was how was soy integrated into these uh, industrial and agricultural processes, sort of specifically in ways that might have been either similar to or different from uh, the the ways that it was in other European markets? Sure. So I already uh said that uh, Japan, Japan tried to gain a foothold on the Asian mainland. And that was, of course, because of the ongoing imperialism back then, the imperialism that spread from Europe to regions outside Europe. You know, the USA had uh, imperial projects running. Japan had them running. And that basically brought the soybean to the Western world, These, um, the connection between imperialism and um, uh, economic expansion, this kind of ideas. And Germany comes in precisely because of that, but in a very twisted kind of way. With World War One and the end of World War One, Germany lost its former colonies, and with that, direct access to 
resources and fat so they could purchase it. Not only in theory, but also in practice, they could purchase it from British colonies, from French colonies, like we talk about palm oil or um, palm nuts, we talk about coconuts that all grew in various regions in both um, uh, Africa, but also in Southeast Asia. But they were not under the control of the German Empire any longer. That after 1918 didn't exist anyway in that form. So now we are entering the period of the Weimar Republic uh, when the Germans had no colonies any longer. And then there are there were a few political and economic considerations, but also some ideological considerations at work that let the soybean uh, that let Germans discover the soybeans. So for German oil millers, partly the argument was, okay, we need cheap resources. Our finances are down. Our economy is down. So we need cheap resources. And we don't want to be become dependent on British or French supplies. So we, whenever we can, we want to limit imports from colonies that are under their control. That is why they, on the one hand, they needed to import something. On the other hand, their, their choices were not limited, but in their minds, they were limited. And then they came up with the idea that, wow, soybeans from China, that is not under the control of whatsoever empire. Let's import this. Let's import the soybeans. There was an illusion. German oil miners were not aware about the great power Japan had over Manchuria. They just thought that hmm, it's not controlled by a European power. Let's make, um, let's import these soybeans. They were traded by Japanese companies, partly also by Danish companies. Um, they were cheap. They were among the cheapest uh, on the world market together with linseed oil or linseeds and cotton seeds. But linseed had limited uses, especially when it comes to food. Uh, linseed oil has a specific uh, taste, by taste, that Germans were not so interested in. Some of them are, and various reasons they like linseed oil. But in others, it's rather considered as off-putting in a way. So they um, tried to avoid using linseed oil in the production of margarine. On the other hand, they had to limit the use of linseed oil because linseed oil has the um, dries out on fresh air and that makes it perfect when you paint something that really what you whatever you paint dries out and that nothing is sticky when you touch it. So that channeled all the linseed supplies or the linseed oil supplies into that oil, uh, into that paint market. Cotton seeds were uh, uh, on offer by uh, American supplies and by British supplies. They were cheap, but production, especially in the uh, interwar period, was going up and down. So soybeans seemed to be a perfect here as a supply for oils. 
What also helped with uh, with triggering the, the demand for soybeans, specifically in Germany, was that, as I said, the German um, economy was down, livestock production was down as well. And the idea was that if we, the Germans, import more soybeans, we then channel the soybean oil to the margarine production. It's a a more affordable substitute for butter um, and we uh, channel the residue of the milling process to farmers to increase uh, livestock production and with that they are able to offer more meat to German customers and with that we are, they were also able, that was at least the idea, they were also able to increase specifically uh, pig production because there was a back then there was uh, still the idea that lard is a beautiful product we don't like lard these days but back then a hundred years ago lard was an excellent product you could use it for frying for shortening you could spread it you could bake with it you could do so many things with lard but lard comes from what Germans called fatty pigs and to have enough lard, you need to feed them with fodder, of course, and soybean as a fodder, the, the residue of the milling process, seemed to be a perfect fit here. And that's how Germany actually got into this dependency on soybeans from Manchuria, traded, as I said, by Japanese and Danish um, trading companies. And what is also... Uh, good to know here maybe is that the Germans that was a development from the Weimar Republic into the Nazi period that dependency on uh, Manchurian soybeans and through that Germany became actually the main customer of whole soybeans from Manchuria no, no other country in any part of the world imported more whole soybeans than Germany. Others did import them as well. Even Norway imported soybeans. Uh, Denmark, of course, Great Britain, France, they all imported soybeans, but not to that extent. Yeah, that was one of the most, for me, surprising things that I learned from the book. I had never really considered even the possibility that Germany was the world's leading importer of soy in that period. Um, and in that sense, I guess it's, uh, you know, sort of, obviously there are lots of shrewd political and business decisions behind that, um, but it does make Germany quite an outlier uh, globally in terms of its consumption. Um, the other outlier in your story is, uh, as I suggested, uh, America, which, I mean, in some senses, it's always the outlier in everything. But uh, unlike Germany, uh, it, it is it is sort of the, the odd man out here for a different reason, right? So Germany, as you've described, becomes heavily dependent on the import of uh, soy for fat and for protein um, in that interwar period. The rise of soy cultivation in the U.S., and so this is not a matter of import, it's a matter of actually cultivating uh, soy in the U.S., starts out to address a very different set of problems, a crisis. Um, so I wanted to ask you about two things uh, in that respect. So first, can you tell us about uh, what you describe as waves of 
pure necessity that drove the expansion of mass soybean production in the U.S. And the, the second is, um, despite the differences between the history of soy in Germany and in America, uh, one of the arguments that you make about globalization, uh, and specifically about the globalization of soy in the early 20th century, actually ties the two countries together. Um, and I want to quote you here. You write that um, at World War One's end, soybeans vanished quickly from European and American tables, but not from their markets. And I mean, I, I see this as quite important, and I'd like you to expand on that. So the first one is the waves of pure necessity, and the second is the vanishing of the soybean from the from the table. Sure. Let me briefly go back that you mentioned you had no clue that Germany played such a big role here. Nobody had. And even back then, normal people would not have an idea that they depended on soybeans. They would not even have heard about it. Soybeans were around in very specific circles, very specialized circles, like some agriculturalist worked on soybeans, uh, particularly also in Austria, but also in Germany, to try out whether they would grow on German soil as well. Um, oil millers knew about the situation with the soybean. Farmers did because they bought it as a protein-rich fodder, but normal people would not have whatsoever clue that they would eat meat or fat produced on by means of soybeans. And the same goes for the soap and the margarine they consumed, they ate. That was a little bit different during World War One, and that brings me to your actual question. Um, during World War One, uh, of course, imports from uh, Manchuria went down. Not immediately, but with the British blockade after 1916, definitely after 1917, there were no whatsoever soybeans on the German market. But they were the imports were going down slowly. And then the Germans, in a way, kind of discovered what we know all about to do today is it's much easier to consume soybeans directly and then get the soybeans from the, pro uh, the protein from the soybeans instead of eating meat based on soybean fodder. So Back then, German, uh, Germans decided to not feed the soybeans to their livestock, but to hand it out to the people directly. Sometimes with the effort of producing recipe books, um, but most often there was nothing around than a few soybeans. If you kind of um, treat soybean, dried soybeans the same way as you would treat your regular dried beans that you would grow in your tiny little garden, then you end up with a lot of problems. It is very difficult for the human body to digest soybeans directly, dried soybeans, not edamama, which is the green kind of unripe soybean, but the dried soybean is very hard for humans to digest. If you don't treat it the proper way, you end up with bloating and other kind of problems. So what, and then um, there was one area handing out soybeans directly. Another area 
in during World War One in Germany was, and also in the United States, but I'll talk about the, the States in a in a second, was to still process the beans, channel the oil into margarine production, and process the residue of the milling process um, um, further so that you have some sort of meal, uh, mill it further and further, that you have a meal, and then that kind of meal of flour, you have a flour actually, that flour you can actually sell and then you can hand it out. The pure word flour in German meal, you know, you associate it with some sort of carbohydrate, but Soybean flour contains anything, but that basically means you were given a protein-rich flour that would turn rancid very quickly because it still contains some oil and you cannot make use of it in the same way as you would make of bread flour. So that is, we are talking about the time when some people invented protein-rich Brats that we now go to various supermarkets in various countries and you can buy protein bread. That's perfect. Back then, people were, first of all, not used to it. They expected the real bread and they want, they were not used to having this kind of rancid product. So World War I came with shortage, shortages. Soybeans, they didn't know how to make use of it and they tried to get rid of as soon as possible. That happened both in Germany and to some degree also in uh, the United States because the United States was by no means short in many products, but they had also discovered the soybean by that time and also tried to make use of it for um, regular consumption. And they even came up with recipe books for soybean flour. Uh, how to save on fats and proteins to win the war, what it was called. And as you were right um, and pointed out um, correctly, the Americans did not discover the soybean because they needed proteins or fat. That came a little bit later. They discovered the soybeans because of depleted soils. They had specifically farmers in the Midwest, but also in the southern states, had depleted their soils by the monoculture of cotton in the south and um, and in the south and in the southeast, and because of the monoculture with corn in the Midwestern areas. Both of these crops were cultivated year after year. The soil had not enough time to recover. They would not uh, grow plants like clover that helped these soils to recover. They would not grow interim plants. Um, that basically meant soils were depleted, but it also meant that uh, diseases could spread easily and had it easily on these two plants, uh, crops. So... Um, we talk about bugs here uh, that um, destroyed the harvest for both cotton and corn. The corn borer. Um, some people might be familiar with that term, <laughs> especially American uh, listeners, I guess. 
So American farmers had a problem and they discovered the soybean as a crop that would bring nutrients back to their soil because these um, soybean uh, roots are built in a very specific way. Um, they have tiny little noodles on their roots and these noodles are able to give nitrogen back to the soil and this nitrogen then is much needed when growing crops that have a need in nitrogen and here we talk about corn again and we talk about cotton again. So they kind of discovered the soybean for that reason. The whole story is a little more complicated than that and you can read it in the book. There are bacteria involved and other things. I don't want to go into too much detail here. But that is the main reason why American farmers discovered the soybean. And then, of course, also with the help of some scientists who found out about all of that, they soon, in, then after World War I, they founded what is now known as the American Soybean Association. And they, they lobbied hard for uh, at the uh, American government to promote soybean cultivation in the 1920s and they succeeded with that to some degree but the actual rise in soybean uh, production was then triggered in the 1930s in the aftermath of the Great Depression, Depression and of measures that were then taken in, um, in America so for those who are interested, soybeans were not uh, a, um, a, a crop affected by AAA directly. It was not addressed in AAA, but uh, it um, benefited indirectly because of limitations on other crops. Farmers then discovered the soybean as an alternative crop. And then the whole thing basically took off. With the Second World War, when the um, United States ended the Second World War, they definitely had shortages in fats. They had shortages in few products, not that many, but they had shortages in, for instance, rubber, that is most known. But they also had shortages in fats. And they did a lot of things to uh, promote the production of uh, homegrown fat fats. And here we talk about the increase of peanut production. We talk about the increase of um, pigs again. We talk about the increase again of cotton because cotton seeds, you can turn cotton seeds into um, uh, cotton seed oil. Then you have oil. And we talk about the production of uh, soybeans. And what that all sums up to, that I basically tell a story of the soybean entering the Western world by means of war and crisis. It's the Russia-Japanese war that brought the soybeans to the European markets in the first place. It's in the aftermath of the First World War when the economy was down in Germany and when the agriculture precisely or specifically in the United States was down brought the soybeans again because of the crisis of the 1920s, Germany, economy, America, agriculture. Then we talk about the Great Depression as the next crisis that again triggered soybean demand and soybean production 
And then we talk about the Second World War that, again, triggered soybean production. So this is not because people thought, what a fantastic product. How interesting. Let's get it. No, they needed it. And that's so. what was just fascinating for me to see that sort of at every turn, there's a crisis for which the soybean is the answer, right? It's the answer for somebody somewhere. Um, and I guess that speaks to uh, what's interesting about doing a, a history of soy. Um, and I'm sure I'm not saying anything you don't already know. Uh, but what was another thing that was sort of fascinating for me, you know, having grown up, um, I'm from one of the big corn producing regions in the U.S., uh, you know, lots of sweet corn uh, where I grew up, where I grew up. Um, and then I spent a number of years both as a student and as a teacher in the Midwest, uh, surrounded by, you know, hundreds of miles of corn in every direction, most of which was going to feed. Oh, well. Um, yeah, uh, pluses and minuses. But um, so, of course, you know, with that background, I had some sense of, you know, got nitrogen fixing nodules on the roots and you that's why you rotate the crops. But I didn't really understand how new uh, a process that was in the history of uh, agriculture sort of globally and specifically uh, in the U.S. So that was really interesting. Um, you know, even as somebody who'd grown up surrounded by corn, that was something I just didn't realize. Um, so you've already alluded a little bit uh, in your last answer to something you touch on in the epilogue, which is the sort of afterlife uh, uh, in the post-war of soy and sort of getting up to the present day. Uh, so compared to the decades that occupy your time in the body of the book, right, these mostly uh, wartime and interwar decades, what's changed um, and what's remained the same uh, in the ways that we use soy today? Um, maybe to put it differently, you know, does soy mean something different um, in our uh, global culture or economy than it did uh, previously? And if so, how? Things have changed when it comes to meaning, particularly in the last 20 years, but not uh, right after the Second World War. Right after the Second World War, things would basically continue in the same way um, as they started during the, the Second World War, with soybean cultivation expanding, particularly in the United States. With the end of the Second World War, the United States produced most soybeans worldwide. It had passed uh, Manchuria. Manchuria by, by then was, of course, a part of China again. The um, Chinese would not export, uh, or to a very, very limited degree, export soybeans. Uh, on the contrary, they would rather import the soybeans from various markets. Uh, the the um, main producer of soybeans were the US and they would kind of um, trade it all over the world. They were used in the same way that they were um, doing it before the war. Oil on the one hand, residue on the other. Um, they would definitely come up with new technologies in terms of processing it. They would come up with new varieties that would grow uh, in different climates. Uh, here we specifically talk about plants that um, could tolerate the difference in length of the day. Uh, that is something that affects the soybean plant more than uh, other plants. So they would do a lot of research into 
um, botanical research into the plant and into the processing, but the main way of using it remained basically the same. And it is like that up to this day. It's an oil crop for the Food and uh, Agriculture Organizations of the United Nations. And it is a, a very important plant for um, fodder, uh, protein-rich fodder. There were a few things that changed uh, in the 1960s and 70s, and that is that regions in Southern America entered the um, picture. By 1990, Brazil had produced uh, soybeans to a significant amount, but it took again 10 years. I think it was in the early 2000s that uh, Brazil produced equal amounts of soybeans than the United States. And it's rising. We talk about millions, hundreds of millions of tons that are produced each year. So we talk about an expansion of soybean production globally that is unimaginably. So that has changed and it has definitely changed uh, that soybean production is now something that is done in in Southern America that we talk about the deforestation of the rainforest. That has also changed. What I mean with uh, changes in the last 20 years is that few people are aware about these consequences and the number of people being aware of these consequences and especially when it comes to the environment uh, is growing that number of people so there are more people now than 20 years ago that know that we do deforest the rain forest that know people that know that uh, too much meat consumption is bad for the environment for various reasons. Um, belching cows, for example, is an issue here. But we also sim also talk about chicken production, and we talk in specifically in Norway also about the production of salmon that based on soybeans. I mean. Imagine a fish swimming in the ocean, having not so ever natural contact with soybeans, but is being fed with soybean meal. So people know about all that and are being more aware. I hope we can change it into a direction that saves our environment, that we have destroyed in the past hundred years due to soybean consumption, it would be much better if we would simply eat the soybean processed in ways that we as humans can digest them. Uh, as I said, we uh, need specific techniques, need something here, fermentation, for example, to process the soybeans in a way that we can digest them. But I can only hope that this kind of trend grows and not stops somewhere. Yeah, and I think this is a, a really interesting way to sort of finish up in thinking about uh, finding soy once again at the center of a crisis. Now here it's both 
part of the crisis itself and potentially part of the solution. And I think that, again, speaks to why soy is such an interesting subject. And I'm, I was very glad to have the opportunity to talk with you about it today. Um, in finishing up, I did want to ask uh, what it is that you're up to these days. We haven't actually had a chance to talk about this. So uh, this is, uh, yeah, I know that you're also very busy with many things here at the university. If our administrators are listening, you could give Ines a break maybe. Uh, but uh, yeah, what, what is it that you're up to in terms of research? I found the history of fat actually super intriguing. Um, in my book on the soybeans, I basically looked at economic aspects, right? But with fat, I consider looking at economic aspects, but also like more on cultural aspects. You know, fat is so interesting. It was in high demand in the nineteen in in all human history. Fat was in high demand. Now we literally swim in fat. Fat is bad. Fat is bad for your body. Fat is, makes you makes yourself fat. Fat is something we try to avoid. And I find this so intriguing. This this switch and the perception and 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 yeah assumptions about fat that I consider doing something on fat. But fat is literally as big as I mean, it's a macronutrient, right? It's as big as proteins, it's as big as carbohydrates. So I haven't quite figured out what to do, but look forward uh, to doing to me doing something <laughs> on fat. And I just wanted to say I'm very glad I was here. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed this very much. I did as well. And thank you. Take care. Bye. <laughs>